When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth and welcome to the ancient world. Episode 8, Look Upon My Works. Two episodes back, we discussed how, in the latter half of the second millennium BC, the Near East was essentially an interconnected system of large states of roughly equivalent size and power. Since we covered the western states of Egypt, Matani, and Hatti in that episode, it's time to turn our attention to the eastern states of the period, mainly Babylonia and Assyria, and see how they interacted with one another and with the other great powers. Let's start with Babylonia. Following the Hittite conquest of Babylon in 1595 BC, control of Babylonia passed to the Kassites, relatively recent immigrants from the east. The first Kassite king was Burnaburiash I, who took power a few short decades after the fall of the Amorites. Under his rule, Babylonia concluded a treaty with the Assyrian king Puzer Asher III, then a Mitanni vassal, defining the border between their two states. Burnaburiash I had two sons, Kashtiliashu III, who succeeded him as king of Babylon, and Ulamburiash. Ulamburiash is best known for leading a successful invasion of Sealand, deposing a rival ruling dynasty that had ruled southern Babylonia, essentially ancient Sumer, since the region had fallen into disrepair and disunity under the heirs of Hammurabi. Subsequently, Ulamburiash succeeded his father as king of Babylon, reuniting the two political entities. Ulamburiash's successor, Agum III, campaigned to further secure Babylonian rule over Sealand and also extended Babylonian control over the island of Dilmun, modern Bahrain. Under Agum III's son and heir, Karaindash, Babylon, which had been renamed Karnduniash by its new Kassite rulers, had once again established itself as a political and military force in the region. To commemorate Babylon's re-entry into the family of great nations, Karaindash sent precious gifts of lapis lazuli to his contemporary Thutmose III, an act recorded in the Great Temple of Amun at Karnak. Karayindash's son and heir, Kadashman Harbi I, is best known for leading a campaign against the Sutu nomads of the Middle Euphrates. But it was under his successor, Kuragalzu I, that the Kassites really began to put their stamp on the kingdom. Under Kuragalzu, the Kassites implemented an extensive and widespread building program across at least a dozen major Babylonian cities. 
But Kuragalzi's penultimate act was the construction of a new royal capital in far northern Babylonia, which he named Dur Kuragalzu, or Fortress of Kuragalzu, after himself. The city was sited along an important trade route to the east, covered 225 hectares, and included a vast palace and administrative complex, humbly dubbed the Egal Kisara, or Palace of the Whole World. The city's 170-foot-high ziggurat of Enlil can still be seen on the western outskirts of Baghdad, with its reinforcing layers of reed matting and bitumen, and the remains of three temples at its foot. In addition to building his own city, Kurigalzu is also known for giving his daughter in marriage to Amenhotep III, and for a brief but decisive conflict with Elam. The king of Elam, Hur-Batala, unwisely decided to both raid in Babylonia and personally taunt the Kassite king to come out and do battle with him. Kurigalzu marched out, defeated him, and then proceeded to conquer Elam for good measure, including sacking the capital of Susa. Now, anybody else want to taunt Mr. I just built a city and named it after myself and then decided to conquer a neighboring kingdom because I had a free weekend? I thought not. Upon Kuragalzu's death in 1375 BC, rule of Babylonia passed to his son Kadashman Enlil I, who has featured corresponding with Amenhotep III in several of the Amarna letters, offering him his daughter as a second Babylonian bride and inviting Amenhotep to visit his new palace, even while passive-aggressively noting that he somehow must have missed his own invitation to a recent Egyptian festival. There's just something funny about petty sniping being engraved in stone for all time. Oh yeah, did I mention he also asked for Egyptian gold? Well, he also asked for Egyptian gold. His successor, Burnaburiash II, took power in 1359 BC and enjoyed a long 27-year rule. He's recorded corresponding in the Amarna letters with his Egyptian contemporary, Akhenaten, where he seems to have taken his father's penchant for complaining to a whole new level, chastising the pharaoh for not sending him enough gold, for detaining his retainers, and for not writing to him when he was recently ill. During this period, Babylonian merchants were active throughout the entire Near East. In fact, Kassite weights and seals, the common tools of commerce, have been found as far afield as Thebes and Greece and southern Armenia. Perhaps the biggest incident of friction with Egypt came when Canaanite agents, nominally under Egyptian control, robbed and murdered several Babylonian merchants. Burnaburiash shot off a letter reminding Akhenaten, In the time of Kuragalzu, my ancestor, all the Canaanites wrote here to him, saying, Come to the border of the country so that we can revolt and be allied with you. My ancestor sent this reply, saying, Forget about being allied with me. If you become enemies of the king of Egypt, and you are allied with anyone else, will I not come then and plunder you? For the sake of your ancestor, my ancestor did not listen to them. It's not known whether Egypt took any action, but apparently Burnaburiash also went the direct route. A subsequent letter from the Canaanite mayor of Jerusalem to the pharaoh indicated that Kassite agents had tried to slip into his house and kill him in revenge for the crime, and requested an Egyptian garrison for future protection. In other international exchanges, Burnaburiash II also gave his daughter in marriage to an Elamite king, presumably to restore good relations after their recent conflict, and another to the Hittite king Supaluliuma I. 
Domestically, Burnaburiash continued his predecessor's program of undertaking restoration work on sacred structures in Larsa, Sippar, Nippur, and other major Babylonian cities. For the most part, the Kassites seemed far more focused on restoring and preserving the ancient culture they had inherited, rather than moving Babylonian civilization forward. Under Kassite rule, great efforts were made to collect and organize the literature of previous ages, and to continue the process of translating ancient Sumerian works into Akkadian, not notably into Kassite. In terms of their overall impact on Babylonian culture, the Kassites strike me as pretty considerate house guests, the kind who tidy up the place, then leave a nice note and a six-pack in the fridge. Stop by any time, Kassites. The Kassites had their own language, one unrelated to any other we know, and Kassite kings typically use Kassite language names, only occasionally splicing them together with Babylonian names, such as the previously mentioned Kadashman Enlil I. We also know that the Kassites had their own pantheon, also mainly derived through the names of kings. But while a few Kassite gods, such as Shukwamuna and Shumalaya, had shrines in the royal palace, the worship of the ancient Babylonian gods continued to predominate. Kassite kings maintained control of their realm through a network of provinces administered by governors. Almost equal with the royal cities of Babylon and Dur-Kuragalzu, the revived city of Nippur was the most important provincial center. Nippur, the former Babylonian religious capital, which had been virtually abandoned by about 1730 BC, was rebuilt in the Kassite period, with temples meticulously restored to their original foundations. In fact, under Kassite rule, the governor of Nippur, who took the Sumerian title of Gwenaku, ruled as a sort of secondary and lesser king. One novel Kassite practice with a lasting impact on Babylonia was the king's substantial land grants to family members, officials, priests, and military personnel. These grants were specified in great detail and recorded on stelae called kuduru, the Akkadian word for boundary. Such kuduru, decorated with images of gods and mythical creatures, are one of the most enduring remnants of the Kassite period. Novel practices aside, the success of Kassite rulers was mainly built on the relative political stability they achieved. The Kassite dynasty ruled Babylonia practically without interruption for almost 400 years, the longest rule by any dynasty in Babylonian history. Bornaburiash II held power in the mid-14th century BC, a time when the general political situation was becoming more complicated, particularly in Syria and Canaan. A lot of this had to do with the return of another major player onto the scene, Assyria. The old Assyrian Empire had collapsed back in 1760 BC, shortly after the death of its first great ruler, Shamshi Adad. The next few centuries had not been kind to the Assyrians, pushed back into the small enclave surrounding their capital of Assur, and under constant threat from powerful new kingdoms under the Mitanni and the Hittites. The Mitanni king Shaushtatar had even invaded Assyria and sacked Assur in the mid-15th century BC, reducing Assyria to vassalage in the process. While he was there, Shaushtatar also carried off the great gold and silver doors from the Assyrian palace to re-erect in the Mitanni capital of Washukani. You can be pretty sure the Assyrians aren't forgetting that one. Assyrian society had originally grown strong through a combination of trade and militarism. 
Hemmed in and subjugated by other powerful kingdoms, their economy withered and their warrior ethos was suppressed. It was during this period that a change appeared to take hold in the Assyrian psyche. In previous centuries, Assyrian cylinder seals typically contained images of serene Babylonian gods and goddesses accompanied by Sumerian hymns and prayers, as was the common fashion throughout the Near East. During this period of subjugation, however, the seals began to depict vivid scenes in a traditional Assyrian style of violent mortal combat and of men confronting beasts, monsters, and demons, perhaps reflecting the powerful, malevolent forces that the Assyrians perceived all around them. The main lesson the Assyrians learned from this period, one that they would apply in subsequent times of strength, was the importance of keeping trade routes and outposts under their own firm control. Otherwise, they risked a return to backwardness and poverty. In the mid-14th century BC, a political situation arose that would cause a break in the status quo and a major realignment of the regional powers. The trigger was a Mitanni succession crisis, with two branches of the royal family competing for the throne. The eventual Mitanni king, Shutarna III, shifted his allegiance from the Hittites, who had backed his father's faction, to the Assyrians, who were technically still Mitanni vassals, but had begun to show a resurgent strength under their kings Ariba Adad I and Ashur Ubalit I. This betrayal did not sit well with the Hittite king Supaluliuma I, who swept down from the north, sacked the Mitanni capital of Washukani, and reduced the western half of the country to vassalage under the Hittite-installed king Shatiwaza. With this act, the Hittites replaced the Mitanni as public enemy number one of the Egyptians in the Levant. At the same time, the Assyrians under Ashur-Ubalit I struck with equal speed and vigor to annex eastern Mitanni lands, with one stroke giving birth to the Middle Assyrian kingdom and catapulting Assyria to relevance among the regional powers. Ashur-Ubalit I wasted no time in pressing his new status, sending a letter to Akhenaten requesting that Assyrian envoys be permitted to visit the pharaoh's court. The request was granted, and in subsequent correspondence, Ashur-Ubalit began addressing the pharaoh as brother, diplomatic code for equal. He soon went even further, chastising Akhenaten for being stingy with his gift of, you guessed it, Egyptian gold. Is it from a great king, a gift such as this? Gold is as dust in your land. One simply gathers it up. Why should it linger before you? I intend to build a new palace. Send me enough gold for its decoration and its furnishing. You know, with pushy neighbors like these, it's really no wonder that Akhenaten moved out to the desert. I'm just surprised he left a forwarding address. A subsequent visit by Ashur-Ubalit I to the Egyptian court apparently spooked the Kassite king Burnaburiash II, who wrote to the new pharaoh Tutankhamun, With regard to my Assyrian vassals, it was not I who sent them to you. Why did they go to your country without proper authority? If I am dear to you, do not let them conclude any business. Return them to me empty-handed. It's not clear why he referred to the Assyrians as his vassals. The claim certainly had no merit at the time, if it ever had. But even Bornaboriash II had to yield to the reality of resurgent Assyrian power, eventually writing to Ashurubalit I requesting his daughter for a bride, in an attempt to smooth over relations. The daughter, Mubalatat Sharua, became Bornaboriash's main royal wife. 
Their son, Kara Hardrash, took power upon his father's death in 1333 BC. But the ascension of this half-Assyrian king drove the Kassite military into revolt. They quickly overthrew and killed him and placed their own ruler on the throne of Babylon. Just as quickly, Ashur-Ubalit, the grandfather of the murdered king, invaded Babylonia, overthrew the replacement, and installed a second son of Bornaburiash named Kuragalzu II on the throne. Despite gaining power through their intervention, Kurigalzu II grew increasingly resentful of and hostile toward his Assyrian overlords. When, after reigning for 35 years, Ashur-Ubalit I finally died in 1318 BC, Kurigalzu marched the armies of Babylon north against his successor, Enlil-Nirari. The resulting Battle of Sugagu resulted in a victory for Babylon, who expanded her borders at Assyria's expense. But both kings survived the battle, and tensions remained high over the next decade, until they both, coincidentally, passed away in 1308 BC. So, the top of the 13th century BC seems like a good time for a quick recap. As we discussed two episodes back, King Supaluliuma I of the Hittites and his son Arnuwanda II had both recently died of plague, and their successor, Mursili II, found himself caught up in Anatolian intrigues. Meanwhile, the last pharaoh of the 18th Egyptian dynasty, Horemheb, ruled in Egypt. From this episode, we also know that Mitanni was on a serious decline, Kassite Babylon was holding steady, and Assyria was on the rise. Got it? Okay, now for your listening pleasure, the Near East of the 13th century BC. Between 1295 and 1292 BC, three of the great powers got new rulers, all of whom would put a powerful stamp on the events of the region. In 1295 BC, Muatali II, son of Mursili II, took the throne of Hatti, while Adad-Nirari I took power in Assyria. And, in 1292 BC, upon the death of Horemheb, the 19th Egyptian dynasty was inaugurated under a new leader who had bequeathed his name. The 19th or Ramesseed dynasty, for all its later glory, was founded in fairly low-key fashion. Ramesses I was vizier, troop commander, and friend to Horemheb, who had produced no sons, and apparently decided to pass rule to a comrade and fellow career army officer. Ramesses' family hailed from Avaris in the Nile Delta, former stronghold of the Hyksos invaders. Already elderly when taking power, Ramesses' short rule of two years accomplished little other than paving the way for the succession of his son, Seti I, who would rule Egypt from the ancient capital of Memphis. Seti's transition was eased by the fact that he held the same titles, vizier and troop commander, as his father, and had already led military campaigns against Syria during his father's short reign. In order to restore Egypt's fortunes after the instability of the Amarna period, Seti I inaugurated major building works at home and an aggressive foreign policy abroad, as well as a period of artistic and cultural renewal that brought a level of sophistication scarcely equaled in later centuries. Seti I personally reopened the rock quarries of Aswan to build obelisks and colossal statues, and, during his 11-year rule, massive construction projects were initiated or completed at Karnak, Abydos, and Thebes. The quality of the reliefs that embellished the new cult temples and tombs are virtually unsurpassed in Egyptian art. 
One particularly striking temple relief at Abydos depicts Seti I showing his young son Ramesses II the long official list of all the Egyptian kings, from the earliest times down to his own reign. This depiction is all the more remarkable since Ramesses II would grow up to become the greatest pharaoh of all time. Seti I led another military expedition into Syria as early as the first year of his reign, traveling up along the Ways of Horus, a series of Egyptian military forts, running between the Nile Delta and southern Canaan. Once in the region, Seti received tribute from loyal cities, reconquered rebellious ones, and compelled regional chiefs to cut down valuable cedar wood to take back to Egypt as plunder. Seti I continued to campaign in Syria and the Levant during subsequent years, each time following Thutmose III's tactic of swift movement up the coast while securing his flank and supply lines by sea through the use of Canaanite port cities. Seti I's main priority was to reaffirm Egypt's sovereignty over Syria and Canaan, which had become increasingly challenged by the Hittites under their king Muwatali II. Seti confronted the Hittites several times in battle, possibly the first direct engagements between the two powers, as opposed to clashing via their Canaanite proxies. For the most part, Seti emerged victorious from these contests, reclaiming disputed territories for Egypt. Syria was not his only focus. In other years, Seti also continued the ancient Egyptian tradition of campaigning against both Libya and Nubia. The greatest achievement of Seti I's foreign policy was the recapture of the powerful Canaanite city of Kadesh from the Hittites. An Egyptian possession since the Battle of Megiddo in 1457 BC, Kadesh had fallen under Hittite domination during the reign of Akhenaten. In his second northern campaign, Seti successfully defeated a Hittite army that tried to defend the town. After putting the enemy to flight, Seti, together with his young son Ramesses II, entered the city in triumph and erected a victory stella on the site. Unfortunately, Egyptian inability to maintain a permanent military occupation meant that Kadesh soon reverted to Hittite control. While there's no evidence that Seti I ever made a peace treaty with the Hittites or returned Kadesh to them voluntarily, he may have reached an informal understanding with Muatali on the borders of their respective empires. Upon the death of Seti I in 1279 BC, Ramesses II, known to history as Ramesses the Great, ascended to the throne. He had been groomed from an early age to rule, having fought alongside his father in Syria, overseeing the cutting of obelisks from the granite quarries of Aswan, and been taught the art of statecraft as his father's side. Seti had also surrounded his son with capable men, who would serve him well throughout his long 67-year reign. During the early part of Ramesses II's rule, Egypt retained domination over the southern Canaanite port cities while the Hittites held the northern city of Kadesh. In 1274 BC, the fifth year of his reign, Ramesses II gathered a huge, at the time, army of 20,000 men and marched them north in the footsteps of Thutmose III. The exact goals of this campaign are unclear, either to put down a revolt, recapture territory, confirm the loyalty of vassals, or survey the terrain in preparation for future battles. At the same time, the Hittite king Muatali II led an even larger Hittite force of almost 50,000 men south in a bid to recapture Amaru, a small Canaanite kingdom that had recently been lost to the Egyptians. 
the two sides met at the city of Kadesh on the Orontes River. The succeeding conflict was the largest chariot battle ever fought, involving between five and six thousand chariots. Ramesses' army was divided into four divisions, named for Amun, Ra, Seth, and Ptah. Early in the battle, he unwisely split his forces. The Ra division took the brunt of the initial Hittite assault, and Ramesses' own Amun division quickly found itself cut off, with Hittite chariots bearing down on them. As enemy forces crashed into his ranks, Ramesses rallied his troops, led several charges to break the Hittite momentum, and eventually managed to drive them back across the river, where they were reinforced by Muatali's reserves. A second inconclusive battle was fought the next morning. In the end, unable to either besiege Kadesh or drive off the Hittite army, Ramesses led his forces back to Egypt. Both sides had suffered heavy casualties, and neither had come away with a clear victory. But that didn't stop the propaganda machines from kicking into high gear. In numerous Egyptian temples, the Battle of Kadesh was depicted as a great victory of Egyptian arms. The fact that the Hittites subsequently extended their border south to Damascus gives some indication of who probably got the best of the fight. Propaganda aside, Ramesses had to content himself with fortifying the Egyptian border in Canaan to forestall any future Hittite incursions. At the same time, Ashur-Ubalit's successor, Adad-Nirari I, was continuing to expand the frontiers of the Middle Assyrian kingdom. His first victory over King Nazi Muratash of Babylon permitted Adad-Nirari to recover territories lost in the recent conflict between their fathers. When the Hittite king Muatali II died in 1272 BC, Adad-Nirari turned his gaze toward Mitanni. Western Mitanni was still technically a Hittite vassal state, but since such treaties were between men, not states, Assyria saw a golden opportunity. Adad-Nirari had the Mitanni king, Shatuara I, seized and brought to Assur, where he was forced to swear fealty to the Assyrians. With one bold move, all of Mitanni became an Assyrian possession, and I'm guessing the Assyrians got their palace doors back, too. The Hittite ruler at the time, Mursili III, was caught up in a succession struggle at home and powerless to reverse the Assyrian coup. But that didn't mean he had to like it. With armed struggle off the table, he turned to the next best option, the snippy diplomatic letter. In response to a missive from Adad-Nirari, he replied, so, you've become a great king, have you? But why do you continue to speak about brotherhood and about coming to visit? Do those who are not on familiar terms with each other call one another brother? Why then should I call you brother? Were you and I born of the same mother? Oh, snap, Mersili. Mersili's successor, Hattusili III, decided that the best defense against the growing Assyrian threat was to join forces with their old enemy, Egypt. In 1258 BC, the 21st year of Ramesses II's reign, the two rulers signed the Treaty of Kadesh, essentially a pact of non-aggression and mutual support. This comprehensive peace treaty is considered the first such document in recorded history. A copy of it is held in the Istanbul Archaeology Museum, as Turks consider the Hittites to be their earliest native civilization, and an enlarged replica hangs on the wall at the headquarters of the United Nations. In addition to his roles as warrior and peacemaker, it is as a monument builder that Ramesses II stands preeminent among all the pharaohs of Egypt. 
He constructed more temples and erected more colossal statues and obelisks than any other pharaoh before or since. Where Khufu built the Great Pyramid, Ramesses spread his monuments across the entire Egyptian landscape. He built at Karnak, Luxor, Thebes, and Abydos, but perhaps his greatest works are the two temples carved into the mountainside at Abu Simbel in Nubia. The main temple, dedicated to Ra Harakti, is flanked by four colossal, 60-foot-high, seated figures of the king. He also constructed a new royal capital on the Nile Delta named Pi Ramesses. Yes, after himself, why wouldn't it be? Jewish labor was used in the city's construction, and the biblical exodus is purported to have taken place in this area in the 17th year of Ramesses' reign. As a more personal legacy, Ramesses II also sired more children than any other Egyptian pharaoh, over a hundred sons along with uncounted daughters. During the second half of the 13th century BC, while Ramesses continued to rule over Egypt, Assyrian expansion also continued under the strong kings Shalmaneser I and Tukulti-Ninurta I. These rulers focused mainly on the conversion of Mitanni from a vassal state ruled by an often rebellious native dynasty into directly controlled Assyrian territory. As a side note, Shalmaneser was also the first monarch to use the deportation of his enemies, along with their families and property, as state policy. This policy was expanded under his son Tukulti-Ninurta I, who deported large numbers of northern Syrians to Assyria to work as forced labor on agricultural and other public projects. As another side note, Shalmaneser also claimed to have blinded 14,400 enemies in one eye. In case you haven't picked up on it yet, the Assyrians still had a lot of anger to work through. Although a large amount of their ire was channeled into territorial expansion at the expense of their enemies, it was also evident on the domestic front. Laws, particularly those regulating social conduct, were strict and punishments severe, including beatings, mutilation, and death by impalement, the forerunner of the Roman crucifixion. The conduct of women was even more rigidly prescribed. Under Tukulti-Ninurta, the Assyrians' western border reached the Euphrates, where they faced Hittite fortresses on the opposite bank. Assyria maintained pressure on the new Hittite king Tudhaliya IV, who was also beset by succession disputes and rebellions by vassal states in Anatolia. Meanwhile, the ongoing Assyrian friction with Babylon came to a head and Tukulti-Ninurta invaded his southern neighbor in 1225 BC, deposing the Kassite king Kashtiliashu IV, whom he carried off to Assur in chains, and appointing a series of puppet Babylonian rulers over the next decade. Assyrian military successes and imported Syrian labor provided the resources to complete numerous construction projects, including new palaces at Assur and Nineveh, and the founding of the city of Nimrud. But Tukulti-Ninurta's most ambitious project was the construction of a new Assyrian capital named Kar-Tukuli-Ninurta, opposite Assur on the Tigris River. So, for those keeping track, this is the third civilization this episode whose king has built a massive new royal capital and named it after himself, the others being Dur-Kurigazu in Babylonia and Pyramazes in Egypt. These are in addition to Al-Untash-Naparisha, built by the Elamite king of the same name, and Akhenaten city of, yes, Akhenaten. The ability to construct these cities, essentially enormous palaces, 
is just another indicator of the absolutely insane amount of wealth and resources available to the rulers of this era. Remember Tutankhamun's burial hoard? And he was, let's face it, a nobody, just a minor little short-term boy king of the Amarna line. For those who may be asking, is that kind of conspicuous consumption sustainable? Doesn't something eventually have to give? Give yourself five points, because the answer to those questions is just around the corner. In 1213 BC, Ramesses the Great finally passed away at the age of 91. He was succeeded by his 13th son, Merneptah, by then already in his 60s. In the fifth year of Merneptah's reign, a northern confederacy of seafaring raiders called the Sea Peoples invaded Egypt from the west in a coordinated assault with the king of Libya. Merneptah led the armies of Egypt against this combined force, and the two sides met near the city of Perire, on the western edge of the Nile Delta. Merneptah's account of the battle is inscribed on a wall beside the sixth pylon at Karnak. Beginning of the victory that his majesty achieved in the land of Libya, Equesh, Teresh, Luca, Sheridan, Shekelesh, northerners coming from all lands. The invaders brought with them their wives, property, and cattle. They were not planning a quick visit. On the Athribis Stele, in the garden of the Cairo Museum, more of the tale is revealed. Merneptah became enraged upon hearing of the invasion, assembled his court, and gave a rousing speech. Later, he dreamed of Ptah handing him a sword and saying, Take thou it, and banish thou the fearful heart from thee. When his bowmen went forth, says the inscription, Amun was with them as a shield. At the end of six hours of fighting, the surviving nine bows, a traditional Egyptian name for groups of enemies, threw down their weapons, abandoned their baggage and dependents, and ran for their lives. Merneptah reported killing 6,000 soldiers and taking 9,000 prisoners in the engagement. The Sea Peoples had been driven from Egypt, but other Near Eastern lands would not be so lucky, and Egypt would have to face them again, decades later, under the pharaoh Ramesses III. They were both symptom and catalyst of the general unraveling of the international system that had characterized the Near East for the past 300 years, and when the process had finally run its course, no civilization would remain untouched. The Bronze Age Collapse, next time on The Ancient World. <laughs>